Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Caves Across Apologetics. I am Patrick. And I'm Tony. And we're in the middle of Chapter 6 of Apologetics, A Justification of Christian Belief, with our good friend, John Frame. By good friend, I mean we're reading his book, uh, Apologetics. And so we're in the middle of uh, uh, a chapter looking at um, apologetics as proof. And the first part portion where he's trying to prove the gospel is he's offering a uh, scriptural rationale for scripture itself so that he can get into where we're at now, which is a scripture's rationale for the gospel message. So this is part two, and uh, you can uh, refer back to the last episode if you're just joining us now. But here he wants to take on the argument from prophecy as a reason for having a, a, a rationale in, in belief of the uh, gospel message. He says that scripture does not merely claim to be the word of God. It also presents us with reasons for believing its claims. It presents its claims in a credible way. Scripture is not just a historical narrative that lays out uh, uh, if-then if statements and, and uh, one thing led after another and all of a sudden uh, Jesus and then the church. Nope, uh, it, it comes with, with these um, certain claims to say, um, believe me in these things because ultimately we're going to believe uh, the 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 arguments for uh, ultimate belief uh, in in the one who uh, speaks these things, uh, which is which is God. But in one sense, such credibility is not necessary. God could have put the words "Scripture is the Word of God" in the Bible, and then through persuasive power of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally convinced elect readers of the truth of that statement. Entirely possible. We could have kind of forced us to, you know, right. wrestled us down and kind of, you know, grabbed us by the throat and made right. us believe, right? right? Right. But God's way is not to persuade people magically of the truth of the word. The Spirit certainly does persuade, but He persuades us to believe inherently rational content. Right. So, in other words, He says the Spirit's work is not to persuade us of something for which there are no rational grounds but rather to persuade us by illuminating the rational grounds that obligate us to, to believe. Spirit-created faith, he says, is not blind faith. It's, it's rational. Okay? And the scripture uh, you know, doesn't merely give us the, the bare statement, Jesus is Lord. Rather, it presents Jesus in the context of a rich, complex, historical drama. And so it's it's uh, you know it illuminates the rational grounds that obligates us uh, to believe. And in terms of uh, you know the the life and work of Jesus, we say that as he says here in the complex historical drama. Right, right. It's why we can go back to the Old Testament and look at precursors for Christ in the Old Testament, but say ultimately they failed in this aspect: Adam, David, Saul, uh, uh, Moses. But there will be one who comes, and even Scripture says, though you know, you are you are the the person to intercede uh, on behalf of your people to me. But there will be one who comes that ultimately does that case, and so um, that's where we see in the Old Testament we see the fulfillment of of it in Christ in the New Testament, and we see the culmination of it um, uh, of that message carried out. Uh, in the church and in the the uh, the epistles and uh, after the gospels there. So Israel learns uh, from the Old Testament the nature of man's plight, the sort of a sacrifice needed to deal with sin, the sort of suffering that must be involved, the remarkable combination of divinity and humanity required for the work of salvation, 
the divine self-giving. That's what we see in the Old Testament. One would have to would have expected that when Jesus came on the scene, at least after his crucifixion and resurrection, a lot of pennies would have dropped. Suddenly, all the pieces <laughs> like, of the puzzle oh, came together yeah. in Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so hundreds of prophecies and narratives were involved, all pointing in various ways from various perspectives in only one direction to right. Jesus. And we see we see that uh, um, G.K. Beale uh, writes uh, uh, the, New, uh, the New Testament's use of the Old Testament to, to show that. Uh, we see some of the best preachers uh, th- through the 2,000 years of church history showing ways which um, these prophecies and uh, these precursors to Christ point to Jesus. And uh, we, we um, s- see in our, our daily Bible readings how uh, fulfillment uh, occurs by just looking at uh, all the little cross-references that are, that are in our Bibles to help us to see, oh, hey, look, th- this same motif is used here, or this prophecy is foretold here, and we see it uh, culminated in, in who Jesus is. Exactly. And so he says, the argument from prophecy then, right, is actually an argument from the whole Old Testament. And, and it's uh, in reality an appeal to the extraordinary rational structure of Scripture itself. He says here we have a wide variety of human authors writing across many centuries with uh, very different interests, concerns, styles, and level of intellectual sophistication, saying many different things, and yet at the same time saying one thing, Jesus is coming, and this is what he will do, and this is what he will uh, be, Mm -hmm. right? And so this does not, he says, indicate uh, something of God's sovereignty over history, and obviously it, it does. Does it not also show that the Old Testament is more than just an ordinary book? And he would say, yes, it does. And does it not show some remarkable things about Jesus? Yes. Is this not a powerful witness to the word of God? Yes. Right. So again, this is the argument from prophecy. So if you hesitate to agree, then he says, go ahead on and read the Old Testament for yourself and see. Right. And so the argument from prophecy is the whole Old Testament itself and all the things that it led up to in order to get us to uh, to Christ and all the predictions that it made about Christ and who we would be and what he would do. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, I, I think I've linked this video before and I'll try and remember to do it again, but uh, uh, there's a, uh, a Christian group that goes to Israel and reads um, the Isaiah prophecies and and just just gives them without any context who do you think this is talking about? And they're like, well, you know, Jesus can, is, is a good teacher, but clearly not the case uh, that he's, you know, God incarnate, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, no, I was just reading from Isaiah 53 or, you know, uh, the, 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 the prophecies of the fulfillment of, of uh, the suffering servant. And you've attributed to, uh, to them. Have, have you read this before? And there's no, there's no context there of, well, you know, uh, th- this is the nation of Israel fulfilling these things appears for our transgressions and, and, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, messianic fulfillment that, that occurs there. And so that's really interesting to see a, a prophecy that is so fulfilled, uh, in the old, uh, in the new Testament that, uh, that the old Testament prescribes to, um, to the suffering servant. That will come. Right. And so if you read it out of context, you automatically assume it's talking about Jesus. 
right? That's the point I think he's trying to make. So you read it on the con. Here, let me just read this. So what do you think it's talking about? Well, you know, Jesus said, yeah, wait a minute, though. This is Isaiah, right? So why do you automatically assume it's talking about Jesus? Because it's so specific. <laughs> because it is. <laughs> predictive message, exactly. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> All right, so moving on from the Old Testament, we move to the New Testament, and the New Testament's witness to Christ. Continue reading into the New Testament, and you see how the Old Testament expectations is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus speaks with amazing authority and wisdom, and he also claims to be God. He doesn't he doesn't cite the the Talmud or the 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 um, the various uh, past uh, rabbis that have come down in into uh, in tradition. Uh, he speaks with authority. He doesn't quote anybody. And the people are amazed by this. He points to God's word and says, uh, 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 in hearing this, uh, standing before me, you have seen this uh, prophecy fulfilled today. Mm. How, how can you do that? He forgives sin. He, 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 you know, he does all his miracles as well, but the, the way he talks, the, the, the way he claims to be, he, he identifies uh, with being the son of God. And then the, the Jews pick up stones to stone him because they know what he's claiming. Uh, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, how, how can he be the Lord of the Sabbath? Only God created the Sabbath. So all this, this, this uh, kind of bunk of, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God and worship me. That's all he's saying. That's all he's yeah. saying in, in the New Testament. He's yeah. he's identifying over and over and over himself again. with 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 the Son of Man, and and uh, we we see that as uh, as evidence of of um, as the coming Messiah, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, who is actually God with us. So, what is perhaps even more amazing, however, is that many Jewish monotheists believed him. Yeah, and so that is amazing, right? He asked the question, uh, uh, frame here, how could these Jews believe such a startling claim, one that apparently contradicted the monotheistic foundation of their entire early religious training, right? right? So that's just as amazing as everything else. They believed it, right? And so he says the personal impression made by Jesus on his disciples must have been entirely unprecedented. His words were quite different from those, as you mentioned, of other teachers. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes who just, you know, quoted, you know, the teachers and the fathers and that sort of thing. And perhaps even more amazing, Frank tells us, people who knew Jesus intimately were convinced that he had never done anything wrong, right? <laughs> Peter referred to him as the one who, committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth, right? Just amazing when you look at it. Right. All right. Well, then there's the miracles and the resurrection. We can't forget those. Those are important. Yes, we're going to be cringy and bring them up uh, because we are Christians. <laughs> Throughout scripture, does God does wonderful work so that people will know that he is the Lord. This is a persuasive, uh, uh, pervasive theme in the Old Testament. Miracles, therefore, constitute evidence of God's reality and of his nature and will as Lord. Thus, apologists have regularly appealed to biblical miracles to confirm the truth of Christianity. Yet, there are some problems with relying too heavily on the miraculous for a persuasive apologetic. So, so the issue here is, should we appeal to miracles or shouldn't we? And what's the place of miracles in terms of our apologetics, right? That's kind of what he's getting at. Right. And he says, yeah, and so he says, we have to be careful, right? 
in relying too heavily on miracles. For instance, in the first place, few of us today would claim to have seen a miracle. I mean, what we find, he says, actually in scriptures are not miracles as such, but miracle stories and testimony concerning miracles. That's really what we find in scriptures, right? And secondly, Scripture warns us against putting too much confidence in miracles uh, to convert unbelieving hearts. In Jesus' story, for instance, of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man in hell asked for someone, um, you know, of the dead to be sent back to tell the truth to his five brothers. Surely they'll believe if someone comes back from the dead. This miraculous thing, right? Right. And Abraham replies, you know, (laughs) if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead, right? So miracles aren't a do-all and be-all to kind of force belief is the idea. Uh, In fact, uh, it was uh, the experience of Jesus himself that many people saw his miracles, but um, that rarely led people to believe, and especially the religious leaders. Right. Right. So we have to be careful with regard to the use of miracles in terms of our apologetic. He 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 goes on to uh, heal all these people, feed all these people. Then he makes some uh, strange uh, teaching about uh, 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 of consuming him, and then a majority of people turn away because they are unable to hear that type of teaching. Well, okay, but all these miracles, he, he fed fed people. It was more than just cutting, you know, loaves of, of bread and, and fishes up into littler parts so that it could feed more people. No, this was feeding thousands and thousands, or this was healing sick or injured or ill or dead or dying people from the dead. And then all of a sudden, this one teaching turns people away. Well, I thought, I thought you know, if God wrote my name on the moon and said, believe in me, then I would, uh, then I would trust. Uh, I'd automatically believe. Yeah, yeah. Just show me. The, the, right? the, the rationale for me would, would flip on and I would suddenly just, I, I would be forced <laughs> to believe there's be nothing that I couldn't do to help it. But that's not what we see in scripture. So we shouldn't expect to see that same type of thing here. Yet as the old Testament, uh, as in the old Testament, the signs were not without value. They were intended as then to show who was Lord. They confirmed the apostles as servants of God and their message as gods. Miracles do have an epistemological function, even though they themselves will not convert an unbeliever. Unbelievers suppress the truth, as we have seen, and the truth of miracles is no exception. If he wants an unbeliever, uh, can write off an apparent miracle by saying, well, yes, it happened, but a lot of strange things happen in the world. Or, well, you know, we, we don't know it now, but in the future, I'm sure we'll come to expect that uh, to, to the science will, will tell me what, what, what I saw with my own lying eyes. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Yet a, a miracle may be the occasion, as the case of Doubting Thomas, for the spirit to impart faith in his heart. So, yes, it is possible for, for God to use miracles. But it's more likely, it's more often that we see, we see the message of the gospel changing hearts. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in fact, that's what we definitely way more often see, <laughs> right? right? Exactly. Overwhelmingly see. Yeah. And, so and, what and, and, and to, to be clear, we would say that that's still a miracle. That's, 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 yeah, that's exactly. changing dead people into alive people, changing <laughs> haters of God into lovers of God. I mean, it, it's not, it's not a, a, a uh, trepidatious thing that that we go oh yeah you know i just suddenly woke up and i was like you know let's try this jesus thing all right i'm i'm sold 
No, no, th this yeah. is this is drastic changes in a person uh, done through the power of God. And so um, while, while it's not uh, flashy, um, you know, uh, uh, ca causing people to regrow arm limbs, uh, it's still, it, according to our, our worldview, according to, to God's message, it's still uh, miraculous. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so in discussion, he wants us to focus on three issues with regard to this miracle issue, right? After this kind of caveat that we don't totally depend on miracles to bring people from belief to unbelief. It's really the scriptures, the word, and as the Holy Spirit applies the word, that brings people to belief. So he wants us to focus it, uh, with regard to miracles then on these three issues. First, the possibility and probability of miracles. Are they possible? Are they probable? Secondly, the evidence for miracles. So how do we know when a miracle has happened? What is the evidence for it? And thirdly, whether miracles serve as evidence for the truth of Christianity. So these first two, right, the possibility of miracles, he starts broadly speaking, are they possible? He nails it down to the evidence for miracles. And then finally, he talks about the uh, miracles, do they serve as an evidence for the truth of Christianity? So he's going to kind of hone us in here as we work with uh, this, these ideas of miracles to get us to see um, how they relate to Christianity. Right. So the first question, are miracles possible or probable? He says in the context of the Christian worldview, the answer is obvious. Miracles are possible because the world is under God's sovereign control. And it's it's not outside the realm of possibility for us to to knock a ball off the the table here and I s suddenly catch it. Well, it's just a, a, a it's not possible to to have happened. It's a it's a a uh, objection to how how the things work in the world. There's no way that you could catch the ball because we all know things fall to the ground when they're knocked over and they they fall down. Well, no, this is just God sovereignly acting as a being who has control who who isn't the, the blind watchmaker who, who winds up the watch and, and lets the universe go until, uh, you know, the 11th hour. This is God who is active, who is holding the universe can, uh, together by, by the power of his word. It is God who by the, his nature and decree determines what is possible. The regularities of nature are his covenantal gifts to us, and they do not at all limit his ability to work in the world as he pleases. And again, right. the consistency of nature is something that's found embedded in the Christian worldview to say not the Christian worldview is to have no basis for that consistency. And you definitely can't look towards future events because you don't know, uh, the, 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 the things that happen today are, are applicable to the things tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. So are miracles possible? And the Christian says, yes, right? Because God is, God is in sovereign control of his creation. But he asked, are miracles probable? And he says, uh, you know, uh, of course, they they are unlikely, but they are by definition, because they're by definition extraordinary, right? Extraordinary. But the fact does not reduce the probability to zero. Just because they're unlikely or extraordinary doesn't reduce their probability to zero. Probability, he tells us, like possibility is determined by God. In a Christian theistic worldview, our question becomes, you know, not whether miracles are possible or whether they're probable, but how likely is it that God will bring about a miracle? That's our question. 
Right. And of course, to answer that question, we must know something about God himself, in particular about, you know, his intentions and goals. In other words, if God is an all-powerful, you know, rational, moral agent who controls the universe, then of course miracles are not only uh, possible, but probable. And so whether or not we have miracles has to do with whether or not what God wants to accomplish by using them. That's the, that's the question he says. Right. And, and to say, are, are miracles uh, possible? We, uh, to say, no, because God doesn't exist is is the question that, that's being begged there. <laughs> if, if you don't allow for the possibility of of God to exist, then miracles aren't possible because by definitions, miracles are God, God manifested. So we, we, we have to get over that hump first here. <laughs> so God announced to Noah that the course of nature would proceed in a way that is generally regular, but God's higher intention is to redeem a people for himself. And to do that, it is appropriate for him to perform unusual works to accomplish salvation, apply it and attest it. And since he has ordained miracles as a mark of his lordship and an attestation of his revelation, we can say that miracles is, are significantly probable. This question of probability is closely related to the next point, and we meet a, uh, a former friend of ours, Mr. Hume. Yeah, right. So the next point is, uh, by the way, that, that quote from uh, Genesis 8.22 uh, you know, many believe that that's a way to solve the uh, the induction problem. Yeah. <laughs> How do we know that gravity is going to work tomorrow? Well, because God says, we promised that uh, things would proceed <laughs> in a general, regular way, right? right? So there you go. We have an answer to the problem of induction. God gives it to us. He's in control. Now he can take it away, and that's what we're talking about now with regard to miracles. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the next issue here, uh, is there sufficient evidence for believing in biblical miracles? And um, he, as you mentioned here, he's going to deal with uh, David Hume, the, uh, the you know, the uh, he wrote during the 1700s, and uh, he was a Scottish philosopher. He says, I reject Hume's definition of miracles as a violation of the laws of nature. Uh, even granted, though, his definition, he begs the question when he says that a firm and unalterable experience has established these various laws of nature. He says, if this argument is to stand as a proof against miracle, the, uh, the experience establishing the laws must be universal and without exception. Mm -hmm. Well, Hume uh, clearly doesn't want to grant that because right. he says that that's not, we don't, can't have that case, right? Our experiences are not universal. That's part of the point that Hume is trying to make. Right. And so he's kind of begging the question here. Hume argues that everything behaves naturally and regularly. Really? Yeah. Uh, what's the evidence? How do you know that? You know right now that things are are behaving naturally and regularly. But what's the if you're an empiricist and all you have is your sensory experiences, then how do you know that things won't change? Right. Well, and, and define, define naturally and regularly. Yeah, right. Balls stay on the ground until they go up. I mean, that, that's just the case. So how is it natural? <laughs> how is it regular? Right. And so, you know, uh, Frank tells us almost, uh, you know, certainly in, in almost all of our experiences, things happen regular, regular patterns and so forth. 
Uh, but to some extent, this is uh, describable by scientific law, but there is nothing in this experience, and here's the point, to persuade us that irregularity is impossible or that everything always behaves naturally and regularly. There's right. nothing in our experience that tells us that, right? So that's, that's uh, so Hume is making a claim here that his experience can't back up is what uh, Frame is suggesting. Right. So reject Hume's definition of miracle, step one. Granted his definition of miracle, it still fails because uh, it's unable to persuade us that it is irregular or impossible or that everything always behaves naturally and regularly. So right. It, it, right. we can take an internal critique or we can take an external critique as well. <laughs> well, experience tells us what is happening. It does not tell us what is or is not possible or what always right. happens. And that's that's the point, right? So experience can say this is what's happening, but it doesn't tell us what can happen, what's possible to happen, what always has to happen. That's right. the point he's trying to make it. Right. You're not supposed to be here, Ball. You're supposed to be on the ground. Why are you still on the table? Well, there, there has to be some other explanation to it that that, that only natural uh, explanations uh, must exist. Oh, well, I, I've got a little brother that's ho holding on to the end of the, the explanation or uh, to, to the ball. Well, there's the explanation. Uh, yeah, but but that's that's an argument from authority. You know, the, the little brother was holding the ball back. Or you can say it's natural. Well, okay, if that's natural, then God is natural as well. He's the natural person who uh, to who uh, has these miraculous uh, th things that occur within nature. Well, here we have uh, experience tells us uh, what is happening. It doesn't always tell us what is not possible or what always happens. But we have not seen what everything always does. For we have neither seen everything nor have we seen things always. So when Hume begins his argument by saying that nobody has ever had experience or uh, of exceptions to these laws, experiences of miracles, he begs the question because that is precisely the question that needs to be resolved. And he's just saying, no, that's not possible. Well, right, but that, that's the whole, that's the whole point. <laughs> right, now notice, uh, Frame says that Hume does not want to argue that because natural laws are universal, then miracles are metaphysically impossible. Right? Hume wants to have an epistemological argument against miracles. So this argument is about the credibility of testimony, right? Can we know miracles based on testimony? That's what Hume says that he's trying to do. And so he's suggesting, he's not saying this is a, it's impossible for miracles from a metaphysical perspective. This is an epistemological can we know kind of question, right? right? And so he believes that miracle reports tend to come from, notice this, Hume argues this, there, these reports, these testimonies about miracles come from emotional excess and therefore exaggeration. They come from uh, ignorant and barbarous nations. And he says they're opposed by those very, by different religious persuasions. So why it, it, the source of the miracles, the source of the testimony concerning the miracle argues against the miracles, right? Because, you know, these are ignorant and barbarous nations. That's the source of it. Or people that are emotionally excessive. And, and so they exaggerate. Or, you know, different religions have different miracles is part of their religion. And so they all cancel out one another. 
right? And so as Hume, I mean, as uh, Frame says, as Hume's argument is essentially that no testimony can establish a report of something impossible. Right? <laughs> That's what Hume, so this is an epistemological um, argument that Hume is attempting to make it. Or what we can do is just put everything that uh, we talked about Hume saying here on Twitter, and then he'll he'll get canceled, and then we won't have to deal <laughs> with him anymore. So yeah, that's, that, right. that, that's how it works these days. <laughs> All right, but applied to the reports of miracles in Scripture, Hume's arguments are unpersuasive unless we assume a priori the impossibility of miraculous events. Well, that's the only way to do it. But again, that that's that's what we're trying to argue for. There is no reason to suppose that the biblical reports of miracles stem from emotional excess or exaggeration, and shouldn't the biblical writers be considered innocent, at least until proven guilty? Uh, <laughs> they weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They were hiding. They, 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 the, the, the women were the ones that went to uh, the, the tomb. When they came back, they didn't believe them, so they went and went and looked for themselves. Doubting Thomas, why, why, why is he doubting? Because he doesn't believe the testimony of Scripture, of right. of, of of the apostles uh, um, yeah. saying that they and the women, yeah, and, and the women, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, you know, here here we have um, uh, uh, evidence uh, for it, and uh, it's being rejected even. Uh, even when we're assuming, oh, well, uh, the, the writers themselves are just making this up, but they're the, yeah. they're the ones, the first ones to say, well, we weren't expecting this. Right, exactly. So there is no emotional excess or exaggeration because they weren't expecting it and they were shocked and surprised that it had happened. <laughs> right, right. Nor is a biblical Israel fairly described as an ignorant and barbarous nation. <laughs> The right. most that can be said is that the biblical writers live before the advent of modern science. This uh, ability to say, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, Iron Age uh, goat herders yeah. uh, just undermines yeah. everything. I mean, you could say that about ancient Israel. You could say that about uh, uh, Mesopotamia. You, you could make that claim and say, oh, well, you know, they didn't have smartphones. Therefore, they're they're stupid. But they're the ones that gave us the roads they're the ones that invented the pencils that we use they're the ones that you know uh w w they had flushable toilets uh in in, in rome of uh, <laughs> you know before we did so let's uh let's hold hold back here on on uh who we're calling ignorant and barbarous yeah exactly so yeah and that's the point he's trying to make here right uh hume says ignorant and barbarous that's the source of uh you know these well, wait a minute that's you know can you really say that when you actually look at the facts of them Right. But clearly they understood that X heads normally do not float. That Go one figure. Go figure. Right. <laughs> so they knew that. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. Even, even though they didn't Archimedes. live in the scientific age, they knew that X heads didn't float. Yeah. Before My Archimedes goodness. displaced water in a bathtub because his wife told him to take a bath. <laughs> They knew those things were weird. <laughs> One cannot normally feed multitudes with a few loaves and fishes, and that men don't normally rise from the dead. And as wow, far as the yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, right. So you know, okay. So humans saying that they're backwards, they're barbarous, they're ignorant. Uh, you know, okay. Well, uh, first that may not be true. It doesn't seem to be true. Now, clearly, it is true that they lived before the scientific uh, modern age, right? But that doesn't mean they didn't know these things right. about, you know, axes, heads don't float and people don't rise from the dead. They knew that. 
Right. They knew that even if they were ignorant and barbarous. Right. Even ignorant and barbarous people know that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, why did they act surprised? Oh, you know, this is just God <laughs> raising accents. You know, this, this uh, to, to throw out a new another movie reference. This is what, what, what always was my issue with the Harry Potter series is that for for eight movies, Harry Potter at the uh, on his day of graduation is still enamored by magic. It's like he's seen magic for the first time all the time. I'm like, no, but you live in a world of magic. I don't understand why you view this as you're you're, you're moving a chair three inches with with a magic wand. I don't understand why you can look at that in awe when you've been doing that for you know eight years now. <laughs> why, why aren't these, uh, you know, these people who are so prone to the miraculous, why, you know, why are they so confused when these things happen? That should be, well, you know, we can't really expect anything other than, uh, you know, uh, us to move forward in the progression of time. But whether our crops uh, uh, are, are plentiful for seven years uh, and, and negative for seven, it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like uh, there would be any expectation of the things to come because miracles just always seem to happen to, to these people. But that's not what we see. Right. So as far as the opposition of contrary parties, we have no knowledge of such opposition in the Old Testament context. Yeah, nobody in the Old Testament is saying that, for instance, uh, the uh, the plagues didn't happen, right? There's no opposition to it, right? They're just trying to deal with them as they happen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so these various objections then that Hume has leveled against the, the possibility that testimony concerning miracles is not credible, uh, Frame is suggesting they really don't work. That's what he's getting at, mm-hmm. right? He says, though, that there is some more fundamental criticisms of Hume's arguments, and they're epistemological, and he gives us two here. First, he says that Hume assumes a non-theistic view of the possibility and probability of miracles. For him, that is Hume, possibility and probability that are determined entirely by autonomous human experience without any consideration of who God is and what God's intentions are. His argument indeed assumes that God, the God of the scripture doesn't exist. Well, you know, if God exists, Hume, then our experience isn't autonomous, authoritative, right? There are um, things that can happen that go beyond our experience if God exists. Secondly, he says, Hume assumes at the outset that divine revelation plays no role in determining whether miracles uh, have taken place. And of course, we have to consider that when we're considering testimony concerning miracles, because divine revelation is testimony. It's testimony by God himself. Right. All right, so uh, we leave Hume for a little bit, and we ask the question, do miracles serve as evidence for the truth of Christianity then? Are miracles an apologetic problem or an apologetic resource? Is the theological and philosophical literature, well, they've been both. Great, that doesn't really help us. But certainly the miracles that occurred in the Bible were intended to convince. They don't. They do not merely uh, propose a decision, but they obligate their audience to make the right decision to recognize and believe God. Many see the miracles and don't believe. Yet they ought to believe on the basis of the miracles, and many do. So even right. in the context of Scripture itself, we see miracles work. You know, for the purposes of convincing people, and we see miracles not working. The 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 uh, rich man wanting to to have uh, uh, Lazarus or the dead go to his brothers. 
Saul does the same thing. He encounters on Endor, uh, you know, a, a, a real dead soul. And what does he do? He just continues on and he dies because of it. He doesn't listen to the, to, to, to the warning signs of, of the uh, ghostly prophet. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, Frank tells us to say that miracles warrant faith is not to say that miracles automatically bring people. Right. They warrant faith, right? Mm-hmm. They are reasons for faith, and uh, they give rational argumentation for faith, but that doesn't mean that they automatically bring people. Nor is it always legitimate, he tells us, for people to demand miraculous evidence, by the way. Jesus regularly rebuked the Jews' demands for more and more signs, right? Miracles, he says, are revelation, but they're not the only form of revelation. All creation reveals God, and Scripture is his written revelation. And so in these sources, there's enough revelation, Brain tells us, to make us all responsible to believe. Paul in Romans 1 exposes unbelief as willful and culpable because there is enough uh, revelation that everyone should believe is what Paul uh, argues in Romans chapter 1. Right. No one may say that he will not believe without a miracle. In that sense, miracles are epistemologically superfluous. We don't absolutely need them, but in them, God gives us more evidence that we strictly need. He piles on the evidence to underscore the cogency of his word and uh, and our own responsibility to believe. Exactly. So do miracles serve as evidence for the truth of Christianity? Yes, but... Uh, Do you need a miracle in order to believe the truth of Christianity? No, you don't, right? Miracles are add-ons. They're superfluous, and they help with regard to this. But really, it's the the Word of God being used by the Spirit of God that makes belief happen. Yeah, just look at the story of Gideon. How many miracles was he shown, and each time he's always trepidish about, uh, you know, going forward. God, God's says that you know i will use you as a strong and mighty warrior and he goes well i need 17 miracles in order to to, to, <laughs> yeah. to do this and well, it's we just time, one more yeah, That's just, right. just one more and i'll believe yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which which again i i can always relate to gideon so i i will never look poorly upon upon uh <laughs> upon old testament people because i'm sure i'm i'm more like them than uh than jesus <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, so he's going to wrap up this uh, this uh, uh, chapter now in proving the gospel, right? So we've looked at several elements here. He says what Scripture teaches, it teaches credibly, that, and that's really his point. It presents an extraordinary uh, spectacle of many authors of different times, social strata, and literary skills, producing a story that is perfectly united around the person of Jesus, And so the facts are presented with remarkable credibility, he says. Even the kings of Israel are shown, you know, warts and all, right? So the Bible just describes it as it is, is what he's suggesting. And that's a credible description. Despite the radical uniqueness of Jesus and his message, indeed, Scripture even presents a credible reason for its being so credible, Right. (laughs) right? What is it? Well, it's divine authorship as the covenant constitution of the people of God. The reason it's credible is because it's written by God. Mm-hmm. Is it credibility uh, absolutely certain? Well, ultimately, yes. 
for it is the word of God himself and therefore deserves to be presupposed as the highest standard of credibility. Whether God speaks it, speaks it through the prophet, or writes it down and we read it, it is ultimately sourced in God. How can we be persuaded of this certainty? Well, the best one is by the Holy Spirit's witness to us, reinforcing the credibility inherent in the text itself. And that's found within scripture, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. And so he ends this chapter here by saying, you know, does it, does, what does the scripture have to say about the gospel? Can, the, can we prove the gospel? Well, he suggests the gospel is, is seen in the scriptures and the scriptures are credible. And so to that extent, yes, we can prove the gospel. The gospel message is credible because the scriptures are credible. Scriptures are credible because they come from God. All right. Well, and that takes care of uh, takes care of chapter six, uh, chapter seven, and eight. Uh, will be a return to form for us because uh, we just kind of finished uh, a a whole book on this. But we'll see uh, John Frame's uh, undertaking of the the alleged problem of evil, and yeah. uh, we'll 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 see if we can uh, do it in less chapters uh, this time than than our last one. So. Uh, <laughs> We'll see what he so says. So the last and, time we spent all, the whole, almost a year on that book on the bottom of evil. Right? Yeah, it was, it was a great book and uh, highly recommended. Scott Christensen, What About Evil? Uh, you can find all those uh, previous ones uh, uh, in, in our in our playlist. Um, and uh, and we'll see what uh, John Frame has to say about the evils of this world. Yeah, he, he entitles this chapter, Chapter 7, Apologetics as Defense, The Problem of Evil. And then this is part one, he says. Questions, general principles, and blind data. So that'll be interesting right. as we move uh, to that particular chat. All right. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.